selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey, Behind the Knife listeners, it's Michael Vu, and today's episode brings trauma and vascular surgeons together to discuss their shared roles in the management of a trauma patient. But before we jump into that, just wanted to remind everyone again about two big things happening at Behind the Knife. First of all, the YouTube Procedures video series that we've been releasing is booming. Last week, we released a video detailing step-by-step how to use Reboa, and that video has had the best first-week performance of any of our past releases. It is awesome to see how much interest there has been in this relatively new, life-saving technique. And overall, you've provided hundreds of thousands of views across our new Procedures videos over just a few months, and a lot of people have told us how helpful it's been for their medical students and interns. Okay, secondly, don't forget that abscite season is coming up. I mean, how could you forget? But not only does that mean the abscite review episodes are coming out soon, but we're also publishing our updated second edition of the Behind the Knife Abscite Companion book. Full-color illustrations, new and updated material, and a brand new section of biostatistics. You'll be able to find that on Amazon in the next couple weeks, and there'll be a print version as well if you like some old-school physical paper in your hands. All right, let's get to today's episode. Okay, welcome everybody to this very special collaboration between Behind the Knife, the Trauma ICU Rounds, and Audible Bleeding Podcast. Today we'll be discussing vascular surgery, specifically vascular trauma, and who should be managing it, vascular surgeons or trauma surgeons. This is a recurring debate that was recently sparked by a surgical perspective article in the Annals of Surgery titled Beyond the Crossroads who will be the caretakers of vascular injury management by Dr. Dubois. A statement from the article reads, there is a crossroads where we must choose to either advocate all vascular trauma to vascular surgeons or maintain vascular surgery skills within the group of surgeons called to provide trauma care. Joining us today 
Our panelists from the vascular surgery side of the house is Dr. Benjamin Starnes. Dr. Starnes is a professor of vascular surgery, chief of the division of vascular surgery, and the vice chair of the department of surgery at the UW School of Medicine. Additionally, he is a former military surgeon with extensive combat experience. We have Dr. Wesley Oman. Dr. Oman is an assistant professor of vascular surgery at Barnes Jewish Hospital, which is a level one trauma center, where he's routinely involved in the care of complex vascular trauma. From the trauma surgery team, we have Dr. Tanya Zacherson, who is an associate professor of surgery and a trauma and acute care surgeon at the University of Chicago Medical Center, which is also a level one trauma center. And Dr. Matthew Martin, who's a professor of surgery at Scripps Medical Center in San Diego, a former Army surgeon who is well-recognized as a leader in trauma care and has served on five combat deployments. Our moderators for today's discussion are going to be Dr. Dennis Kim, an associate professor of surgery and acute care and trauma surgery at UCLA, and is the host of the podcast Trauma ICU Rounds, and Dr. Kevin Canary, who's a vascular surgeon at Brook Army Medical Center and co-founder and host of Behind the Knife and Audible Bleeding podcast. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kevin to introduce the debate. Let's get started. Take it away, Kevin. Great. Thanks, Jason. So just for kind of ground rules, let the people speak and we will give everyone a chance. If you have other questions you'd like to ask, feel free to jump in. So we're going to start with the trauma team and I'll have Dr. Martin open it up here. Dr. Martin, can you tell us why is it important for trauma surgeons to be the providers for traumatic vascular care? Well, I think it comes down to not which specialty should do vascular care. It's in that situation and location, who is best able to take care of that injury and achieve an acceptable or optimal outcome. And I think in many locations, that's going to be a trauma surgeon. In many other locations, that's going to be a vascular surgeon. I think the argument comes up when we start talking about, well, one specialty needs to become the sole owner of vascular trauma. And I think that's where we run into the debate. That's where we run into the controversy. And actually, that article you referenced that set off this debate wasn't so much talking about that. They were really talking about the decrease in open vascular experience globally among all specialties. Not necessarily, well, my specialty owns this. What I particularly disagree with is the, your specialty is not competent to do this when for decades they've been demonstrating that they clearly are. Great. Dr. Zacherson, can you just tell us at the University of Chicago, who manages traumatic vascular injuries? As people may or may not know, uh, the University of Chicago is located on the south side and we're a brand new, well, I mean, two and a half year old level one trauma center. Our penetrating trauma rate is 40% and it goes up to 50% during the summer months. So the trauma surgeons, we actually manage the vascular injuries, largely for a volume reason. With that said, we actually have a very nice symbiotic relationship with our vascular colleagues. We try not to call them in at the middle of the night, but if there's, say, a distal popliteal artery injury that I can't shunt because it's too small and it needs revascularization, we'll call them. But we're cognizant that our colleagues actually have a full OR day the next day. But it's not just from that. It's We're quite comfortable managing these injuries because we see around three or four significant vascular injuries a week or so. We're just looking at our numbers right now. But just the volumes are too high to say, oh, you know, the vascular surgeons have to take care of this. At the bare minimum, if it's a complex injury, we don't know what to do. We can all access the injury, shunt save the life of the patient. And that's something that I really feel strongly that all trauma surgeons have to do that. 
our job is to save the patient. So we need to know how to do that. The next day, after you've done your damage control vascular surgery, call for help, whether it's your trauma surgery colleague or your vascular surgery colleague, call for help then. But we manage it at the University of Chicago. Thank you. It sounds like you guys have a rather ideal setup, I think is probably the goal of many trauma centers. One question that comes up a lot is, say a trauma surgeon bypasses someone and it goes down the next day, who would take care of that at your hospital and how would you guys go about managing that? The first surgeon would typically approach that, want to manage any of their complications or concerns, or if they have to revascularize, they have to thrombectomize, or they're worried that they need to do an embolectomy, anything like that. We would do that because we want to take care of our patients. If there's any concern whatsoever, we just reach out to our vascular colleagues and we say, there's something weird going on here. I don't like this. The angiogram looks fine, but there's something bizarre. Can you come in and help me with it? And so that works out pretty well for us, again, because of that symbiotic relationship that we've created. That's fantastic. Uh, And I'll let Dr. Kim take it to the vascular team now. Sure, great. And we'll start maybe with Dr. Starn. So in your opinion, why do you think vascular surgeons should be the ones to provide traumatic vascular care? Thank you, Dennis. I would have to agree with Drs. Martin and Zacherson about all of the statements that they said. I think in this setting, we need to set aside our egos and biases and focus on what's the most important, which is the optimal care of the patient with a vascular injury. I would also submit that vascular surgery is a vastly different specialty than it was 20 to 30 years ago. This is not a specialty that you can dabble in. What we at Harborview have learned together over the past 15 years is that this is a team sport and that our best results are a result of collaboration. It's not a sign of weakness for the trauma surgeons to call the vascular surgeons. In fact, yesterday, the trauma surgeons had saved the life of a climber on Mount Rainier who was hypothermic. He was brought in with a body temperature of 20 degrees. He experienced cardiac arrest as they tried to intubate him and he was quickly placed on ECMO. While placing him on ECMO, the trauma surgeons actually injured one of the femoral veins and called us to help. And we were there, we were there to help. And yesterday, my colleague, Dr. Nitin Singh, removed the cannulas and the patient's life is saved. And that's what we want. We want that outcome to be a positive outcome for the patient. It doesn't matter who operates on the patient as long as they have a good outcome. Great, Dr. Ullman, anything to add to that? Yeah, I want to echo what Dr. Martin said. I think that's the first time that he and I have agreed on something when this topic comes up based on our Twitter conversations. But I also want to emphasize what Dr. Zacherson and Dr. Starn said. You know, this, I think it's kind of a false debate that's largely been propagated by the the paper. It should be the best surgeon available at that time for the best outcome. Here at Barnes and WashU, we work very collaboratively with our acute care surgery service and the trauma service. We do most, if not all, of the penetrating vascular injuries. Similar to Dr. Zacherson, we're in a very heavy penetrating trauma area in St. Louis. And the volume sometimes gets to where even if the trauma surgeons wanted to do the operation, they simply don't have the manpower or the woman power or the uh, ability to do so from a staffing standpoint. And I, I, I don't think it's a sign of weakness, but I think as the associate program director of the vascular surgery training programs, we struggle with open 
numbers across the country as a, as a vascular specialty. We're fortunate at Barnes where that's not necessarily an issue for our trainees. But when Dr. Martin and some of the more senior people on the call graduated, there wasn't really a heavy endovascular experience. So there was a lot more open experience during training. And I don't think the current generation of either general surgeons or necessarily trauma surgeons are getting that in residency and fellowship outside of certain programs that have been able to historically emphasize it and maintain it. So it's going to be very dependent upon training and then local politics as well. Yeah. And so on the topic of operative volumes, though, why should vascular surgeons continue caring for vascular trauma patients outside of the open operative volume experience? Any other major reasons why you think this should be the case? I think familiarity breeds comfort. And so whether it's a, an elective groin cut down for femoral access, whether it's ECMO decannulation to Dr. Starn's point, whether it's a rapidly expanding groin pseudoaneurysm, all of these experiences and technical tricks that you pick up doing related but not necessarily penetrating trauma injuries will carry over in the middle of the night when the patient is coming in in class three or class four hemorrhagic shock and has been resuscitated and it is a separate it's a it's a different beast but it's a related beast to what you get from the the routine open experience in uh, vascular surgery dr starns anything to add to that well, I would say, you know, there were some comments made on operative case volumes. And if you look at the data from the American Board of Surgery over the past 15 years, there's actually been an increase in the number of open vascular cases among the vascular surgery trainees. The AAST denotes essential cases to include the management of arterial injuries or occlusions, but only 10 of those cases are required. We've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of vascular cases that our general surgery residents and trauma fellows are graduating with. And this is a, a cause for concern. But the number of cases for the vascular surgery trainees has actually gone up. And commensurate with that, we've seen a decrease in the number of in-hospital mortality. That's been statistically shown. Even though the number of endovascular cases is going up, the number of open cases is staying relatively the same. But most importantly, and back to my original point, the outcome, and that is the patient's outcome in hospital mortality, has dramatically decreased. Let me add to that, though, that we have to recognize that there is a significant range of those numbers. And you may get someone who trained at a program where they are doing a high number of open, but you can certainly get someone who trained at a program where they did primarily endovascular, a handful of open cases, maybe one or two open aortic cases. So those numbers have a wide range. It depends whether you talk about mean or median, and there is a large variety of experience you may get. And I think probably this interview is an example. We have people who are representing some very select high volume programs. And I think we tend to think in terms of that and not so much what is happening out in the community centers that don't have those volumes that don't produce trainees like the people on this phone call produce. And we have to recognize that, that that's the reality on the ground. And certainly in the military environment, that's the reality on the combat deployment scene. So Dr. Martin, I think those are good points. And we're getting back to this about the operative volume, specifically for the trauma surgeons, whether vascular is staying about the same or they're doing a number of open vascular cases, certainly general surgery trainees numbers are decreasing and trauma 
attendings, depending on the program they trained in, certainly may not feel totally comfortable with open vascular exposures and repairs. How has the trauma community looked to address this? Someone in your generation has the skill set and can mentor, but in the coming generations, we're going to lose some of that. Yes. <laughs> the answer to that is yes. And, and like that article, if you read the article, the article had no good answers for it either. There were some generalizations about, oh, well, you know, we have an asset course. Uh, you know, there was an e-scars course. There's a best course, which teaches you nothing about vascular trauma management. It teaches you how to place a Reboa, which is an extremely uncommon intervention. So, so that's the problem is, you know, we don't have a good answer for that. Other than I guess we could start sending all trauma fellows and vascular fellows from lower volume programs to Chicago to staff Tanya's facility. But, but yeah, you're right. It's a problem. We don't have a solution. The military is, is also worried about that, right? Because our, our general surgeons have to be vascular competent. You are definitely going to be in place where you don't have a vascular surgeon, and we don't have a good answer to that yet. Just to comment to that, Matt, you know, it's funny you should mention that. We've been talking with Ben Zarzar about that particular issue. And even how do we get other attendings actually from institutions where maybe the, the rate of penetrating trauma is lower for them? How do they even keep up their skills so they can train their fellows, so they can train the residents? And to me, just to add in, I see two separate problems or classes of problems, if you will. One is the surgical end in terms of who can best repair the injury to this blood vessel so that your amputation rates are low, so that your reoperative rates are low, et cetera, et cetera. But very importantly, in my mind, a huge question that needs to be addressed is who is the fastest at bringing this patient to the operating room to save their life? And so that's going to be the in-house trauma surgeon, you know, of course. But the concern is if that trauma surgeon has less and less open vascular exposure, then are they going to dilly-dally? Are they going to do things that we don't <laughs> recommend in trauma? Like, are they going to resuscitate with a bunch of blood, then send the patient to CT scan because subconsciously they're not comfortable addressing these injuries. And is that going to actually lead to increased mortality rate in these patients that we're seeing? So it's multifaceted on that level in my mind. Dr. Zacherson, do you have a guide or a thought process in your head of when you do call vascular and how you think trauma surgeons should think of using vascular? Sure. And again, this approach is quite different from some previous institutions I've been at. So there's, there's again, no room for surgical hubris in any specialty on earth. And I think everyone on the panel would agree with that. So if I'm struggling for whatever reason, typically I'll, I'll go to my backup and I'll just call for help because my backup probably can get there faster than the vascular surgeon. But even if, if I'm there and it's technically challenging, if there's some problem, I have no, no hesitation calling, again, either my trauma surgery colleagues or the vascular surgery colleagues. If I've done a repair to my satisfaction, again, the angio looks great, but there's something off, I'm not getting the, the triphasic signals I want to hear, or there's something that's not right, then I will ask them to come in for a more sophisticated set of eyes from a vascular surgery perspective. Again, after the patient's life has been saved and this is at the reconstruction phase. So what I'm saying with all of this is typically I've given it my best shot in terms of either doing the damage control and then the reconstruction the next day or handing it off to my daytime colleague to do the reconstruction the next day. But if during the course of that reconstruction, there's something going on or something that I'm not happy about, I will either call in my backup 
for trauma surgery, but typically I'll just, I'll ask my vascular surgeon to come and take a look. What is going on here? Is this something you see routinely? And then of course, patient characteristics are important. Sadly, a lot of our trauma patients on the cell side are young, healthy human beings, and that's a whole other conversation. But I don't need to obviously do endarterectomies or anything like that. If there is concern about the quality of the vessels, then I would probably be deferring to vascular surgery from the get-go. Dr. Martin, I have another question for you. I know you have feelings about when some surgeons say they don't feel comfortable. And I think that vascular is one of the areas where a lot of trauma surgeons say, I'm not comfortable. What are your thoughts on that? And then I also would like you to touch on what are the differences between rural and metropolitan hospitals as far as this trend? So I'm not comfortable is perfectly appropriate. And I would say, and I will, I will completely grant this, uh, probably if you surveyed all trauma surgeons in the U.S. right now, I would say at tops, 20%, if that, would say they're comfortable doing vascular. So I, I recognize most trauma surgeons, and I would guess 75 to 80%, did not do much in fellowship, don't do it at all in practice. They call vascular surgery who does the repairs. But there are 20%, and they're at the high-volume centers in general, or there are ones who trained in the pre-endovascular era who are very comfortable with it. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. I will never criticize a trauma surgeon who just doesn't do vascular from saying, I'm not comfortable doing that and calling vascular. That's what they should be doing. And do you think there's any differences in the, I think you kind of alluded to it already, say at a rural hospital, are they able to get vascular surgeons in there or is it more on the trauma surgeon side to handle these injuries? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, my, my guess would be in most rural hospitals, they're not going to get either. At least most rural hospitals I talk to, it's, it's going to be, they're going to transfer the patient somewhere that has uh, a trauma surgeon or vascular surgeon. I'd say if anything, you know, the issue with the rural hospitals are they say, I have a general surgeon on call. They don't do trauma. It would take them two hours to spin up an OR anyway and get in here. So it's faster to just transfer them. Dr. Zacherson? Just a quick point to add to what Matt was saying is I agree. Obviously, we should be supportive of our trauma surgery colleagues who want to call in vascular surgeons for support. But I would also argue that 100% of trauma surgeons have to be comfortable rushing that patient to the operating room to isolate the vessels. And if you can't shunt or whatever, to at least clamp the vessels, save the life. Like there, there has to be a, a basic standard of care that we can achieve as trauma surgeons when it comes to vascular surgery, again, to save that life. And I think brainstorming on how to do that, if this is truly the issue, it is, you know, I'm learning as I'm, I'm hearing this from Matt, but, but that has to be within the purview of the trauma surgeon for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Thanks. If I may uh, add something to that, I agree with everything that's been said so far, especially high volume centers versus low volume centers. You know, at Harborview Medical Center is one of the busiest level one trauma centers in the United States. And the surgeon in chief is Ron Mayer. And I asked Ron Mayer in preparation for this discussion today, who should be managing vascular trauma in our hospital? And he said, you should. And I said, why, why is that? Why, why is that the case? And he goes, because you do it better than we do. So I think that that's a wise statement from a seasoned trauma surgeon who has seen the evolution of trauma care in a modern facility. What I would say is that it's like driving your car through your neighborhood. You know, you know where everything is, 
you know the shortcuts, you know where the playgrounds are. In vascular surgery, the retroperitoneum is our playground. We are very comfortable there. For most general surgeons, like Dr. Martin said, they're not comfortable in the retroperitoneum. But if you haven't been to that neighborhood in quite a long time, things change. The streets are still the same, but the neighborhood seems unfamiliar to you. It's harder to navigate and it takes you longer to get to certain places. So I think the problem here, and like Dr. Oman said earlier, is with familiarity and maintenance of skills. The only way to maintain skills is to do it every single day. So if you're doing it every day, like Dr. Zacherson is apparently in Chicago, then you're comfortable managing vascular injuries. But if you're not doing it every day, maybe you should call a colleague in to come in and help, help get access or help expose a vessel. On the topic of calling for help and the exposures that our trainees or, or new graduates are expected to do, Dr. Zacherson, you mentioned shunting. That just seems like a basic essential skill getting proximal distal control and sticking in a shunt. What about fasciotomies? Reconstructions, I can understand there are going to be some junior attendings that aren't comfortable doing that, but other simple vascular-related procedures like fasciotomies, are you doing all those on your own as well? Yes, that's the sort of the whole package. But also kind of direct, if there's a fracture, when do you, does the X-fix go on? You know, when do you reconstruct after the shunting? When does the fasciotomy come into play? Mandatory prophylactic fasciotomy or will we watch and wait and see? Now we're, we've gotten to the point where, you know, a gunshot wound to the thigh, if your ABI is above one, that doesn't guarantee anything. We're not sending them home because what if it's your profunda that shot off? What if it's your femoral vein and the patient develops a compartment syndrome over four hours? So we're seeing nuances that I didn't appreciate earlier in my career as a trauma surgeon or as a fellow. So yeah, again, I think to stress, I don't know whether it's just we've seen bad, recent bad vascular trauma where the patient has either had CPR in an outside institution come to us perimorbid or we've done ED thoracotomies, but again, you're lucky, you know, if the patient's alive and you worry about the six hour ischemia time, that's great. But for us, we've seen so many, and maybe it's because also we get so many multiple gunshot wounds. So there's other injuries to contend with, but it's the taking them without hesitation to the operating room to do the basic thing you can do to prevent that exsanguination and just putting in that shunt. So gaining exposure as you can, it can be messy. It doesn't have to be pretty and we can call for help, whoever that help might come from to clean up. But I, I just, I worry when I hear colleagues talk about if, if trauma surgeons are getting less and less familiar and more and more concerned about transporting a patient to the OR because they have a vascular injury, that in my mind translates to hesitation. And that in my mind translates to an increased potential in losing that patient. Matt and I have done so much work on equity in trauma surgery and equity for patients. We're looking at all these issues of inclusion and equity. All of that means nothing if we're not saving lives and doing the best we can for the patient that's in front of us. And sometimes that's like a matter of minutes really to make decisions and gain access. So thanks. Yeah. And Dr. Omen, in the endovascular era, do you think that vascular surgery trainees are equipped to expose and do complex open vascular repairs? Absolutely. I think it's part and parcel of modern vascular practice. Yes, there is an emphasis towards endovascular interventions from a patient selection and a, and a patient comorbidity standpoint, but 
it's virtually impossible to graduate from a vascular surgery training program without a significant number of femoral cutdowns. Now, whether that's in the setting of trauma is, is a separate issue. And something I, I think Dr. Zacherson touched on is it's not so much getting to point A and point B in terms of getting control. It's what you do once you get there that I think is really the crux of the argument. Whether the patient is too sick to undergo a complex reconstruction and should just be shunted and resuscitated in the ICU, that's something that you, you need the experience of vascular trauma to know what's the right decision in, at that point in time. And there are some finer points in terms of combined arterial and venous injury or overlaying an orthopedic injury. And all of that comes from steeping yourself in that environment and those experiences. And I, I come from a very, I will admit, biased place, as Dr. Martin alluded to. You know, WashU and Barnes, we, we see a lot, we do a lot. Our trainees, both in the general surgery realm as well as the vascular surgery realm, get a lot of that mixed experience. But that may not be the case everywhere, which goes back to my original point of the right surgeon at the right time for that operation. And getting back to this topic or concept of comfort, you know, I'm not comfortable doing this. What typically happens at your shop, Dr. Roman? So the trauma surgeons call you, you need to do some sort of arterial reconstruction, drop a graft. Do the trauma attendings at that point just scrub out and move on to the next case? Or do they stick around and actually help out and learn some new tricks or tips from you guys? So it kind of depends on the the time of year. If it's in the summertime, they oftentimes have multiple level one traumas in the ER and potentially another operative one running downstairs. And so they may not have the luxury of staying around and being involved in the repair. Their fellows try to stick around as much as possible versus the chief residents. One of the other things that we are unfortunately seeing at WashU is a lot more penetrating injury in children. And in that situation, the pediatric surgery attending and the ped surgery fellows are there for just about the entirety of the case because their volume isn't as high. And that's kind of, I think, good for that exposure in, in that practice population. And I know that's a little bit off topic for the overall conversation we're having here, but it's a volume thing. And I, we keep hearing that from multiple speakers is that people who do this routinely are the ones who should be called. But by and large, with the, the way the training paradigms are going, we're not having the general surgery chief residents graduate with dozen or 20 you know, major vascular cases. You're really getting that in a vascular training program. And I think over time, that should be reflected in who gets called to manage these injuries at the vast majority of places. You know, I would agree with that. I think our residents and fellows are touching blood vessels every single day. So they're doing dialysis access procedures, they're doing subclavian transpositions in preparation for T-VAR, they're doing femoral artery exposures, they're doing extranatomic bypasses, aorta bifems. They're operating every single day on blood vessels. They're not just doing endo, they're augmenting the, the power of endovascular with open surgical skills to give the optimal care to the patient. So you're either doing it or you're not. And I think this idea of creating training programs to teach trauma and acute care surgeons how to do endovascular skills, I think that's foolish because if they're not doing it every single day, they're going to lose that skill set. And I just think that's, that's just a waste of time. Dr. Martin, what do you think about 
the trauma trainees that do the dual training programs, and then also what Dr. Starnes is alluding to, a course to learn endovascular skills for trauma surgeons. Sorry, what do you what do you mean by they do dual training? You mean the trauma surgeons who have also done a vascular fellowship? Yeah. What, what do you think about that pathway? Is that a viable pathway forward? Yeah, I mean that that's a fantastic pathway. You know, if you have the time and the resources to do that. The first author of that article we were talking about is Joe Debose, who who did that pathway, and there are now a growing number of those people in trauma, but but that they're a very small minority both the trauma and vascular surgery community. The one good thing is that they're, they're trauma surgeons, they're vascular surgeons, I'll say, who have a defined and longstanding interest in trauma. If you talk to one of my senior partners here is Mike Seiss, you know, who's a, a very experienced vascular surgeon. And, and one of his criticisms with the vascular surgery specialty is he thinks they've, they've gone away from a focus on trauma obviously in favor of endovascular and elective surgery. He, he would say abandon. I don't think it's quite that bad, but, but he thinks there's much less of an interest in vascular trauma uh, among the specialty than there used to be. And, and he, he decries that as a potential problem. It seems like there should almost be a one-year pathway for trauma attendings to do a kind of abbreviated vascular fellowship that focuses on open exposures and, and, and things of that nature, and maybe not as much on the complex endovascular. And, and actually, I'll challenge Ben a bit. You made the comment that you can't be a dabbler and, and vascular surgery is markedly different than it was. And, and I agree with that 100%. And, you know, the, the complex endovascular and atherosclerotic disease, reconstruction, revascularization. But I would say the, the gunshot wound to the femoral artery or, you know, the stab wound to the brachial artery, there is nothing new in that arena. And somebody who's well-trained and has the skills to do that can certainly do that, whether they're a trauma surgeon or a vascular surgeon. Actually, I'd ask if you think there's been some evolution in that type of injury, because I think that's what we're talking about. And, and in fact, I'd argue you're probably better off in that situation with the person who doesn't do endovascular, so they're not trying to throw a stent into a brachial you know, or a distal SFA in a young trauma patient. Yeah, so I'll agree with you there, Matt. Not much has changed in the management of some of those simple injuries. They're very easy to fix, but I'll give you a scenario. So about 10 years ago, I got called by Jerry Jerkovich, who you know very well, about a patient who had a gunshot wound to the common femoral artery and vein. So kind of the Black Hawk down scenario. He called me down because he said, I think if I open this guy's abdomen, he's going to die. And I want you to put an aortic occlusion balloon in. So I came down, there were five anesthesiologists and five refrigerators full of blood. They were pumping blood into this guy. He had a blood pressure that was non-detectable. His heart rate was 200 and his belly was distended and full of blood. So I took the time to place an aortic occlusion balloon under fluoroscopic guidance. We waited 10 minutes, which is an eternity in an operating room. Everybody knows that 10 minutes. We watched his blood pressure come up to 100. We watched his heart rate come down to 95. Then I watched Jerry open his abdomen and evacuate six liters of blood. And that guy survived and left the hospital in four days. But it wasn't because it was a simple gunshot wound to the common femoral artery. It was because we collaborated and used the power of an endovascular technique to get remote balloon occlusion. So that's where we've come to, Matt. That's where we've come to. And yeah, endovascular has changed the playing field completely. And anybody that's doing an open subclavian artery repair for any type of you know, that, that's 
a 10 minute procedure for us to cut down on the brachial to go up, place a stent graft to temporize that across the subclavian artery or the axillary artery. And we've got a successful outcome, which is what we're all trying to achieve. Yeah. And I'll just add, I agree with all of that. A high common femoral combined artery and vein, I would not classify as a simple injury. A subclavian, I actually think is a great indication for a stent. I think what has changed to Dr. Martin's question to keep going back to this is is the exposure that our our trainees are getting. Yes, it's it's a, a handful of proline suture plus minus some Fogarty and bolectomy catheters, but it's the the exposure that our trainees are getting, and I think that's a core problem and and a really a difficult question at the national level is from a general surgery training program standpoint. How do those programs prepare their graduates for? trauma programs where they may not get that exposure or a vascular surgery training program as well. And I, I, you know, that's what I think has fundamentally changed about those issues and those, uh, those injury patterns. Well, that's great. I I think I've really enjoyed everyone's points here. And I, I think I want to round this out by asking each individual contributor to talk. So I'm going to start with the trauma surgeon. We'll start with Dr. Zacherson. We've all identified that the best mode for these patients is collaborative care, a hybrid approach. What can vascular surgeons do? If you're talking to all the vascular surgeons at the next hospital you're going to work at, that you're going to be collaborating with, what can we do as vascular surgeons to better help and, and to improve the care of these trauma patients? Thanks for that question. So I think good communication, being collaborative, all the, the things that any service will want to have timeliness and response. And also something else that we do from time to time that's very helpful is like we pop into their cases to see if they have, you know, some complex cases going on. They teach us as we go. So again, having that collaborative back and forth, if there's a skill set or something that we want to learn from them. So I think if I had to choose one thing, it boils down to excellent communication and then just breaking down those subspecialty barriers so that we can collaborate together like that. Dr. Martin, any closing thoughts? Again, I, th- I think the main thing to realize is that it, it, in an individual case, you don't know exactly what you're getting just because somebody has finished a trauma fellowship or even general surgery residency or a vascular surgery fellowship. And you know, again, we're all at level one high volume centers. We also covered at multiple level two and even level three centers. And I was at Madigan. And so we saw a lot of the community experience. And and I could just say, I might get a vascular surgeon coming in who, you know, jumps right in and gets immediate control. I might get one coming in who says, I do mostly endovascular. I'm not comfortable going into the abdomen for the iliac. I have to call my senior partner or, you know, I, I don't understand this patient is in shock and should just be shunted and, and get resuscitated. And I'm going to embark, you know, on a six hour revascularization. So I think it's just important to realize, you know, you, you just need to realize you may get a variable product uh, on either side of the specialty envelope. And the important thing is just understanding, you know, what you're getting, who's the best person to take care of that patient. And, and, and usually it is a collaborative arrangement, but, When it comes to basic vascular trauma, getting hemorrhage control, doing a straightforward reconstruction, there are a large volume of trauma surgeons who are perfectly competent to do that. There are a large number of vascular surgeons who are perfectly competent to do that. And the existing data fully supports that. 
Great. Thank you, Dr. Martin. If I could just add one more thing, I think for those trauma surgeons, general surgeons who aren't comfortable doing vascular and are calling in colleagues, if you can, and we typically have a backup schedule, if you need to call in a backup tending to come and cover some of the traumas or TTA ones that are going off while you hang out in the OR, you're never going to get comfortable with these sorts of injuries, approaching them, repairing them, if you're not actually doing them. And so, again, it's much easier for us at busy urban level ones where there's, especially during COVID, a lot more penetrating trauma. But even if you're seeing these once a month or even a few times a year, try to stick around. There's so much to learn in terms of some of the the technical skills and how to shoot an angio. These are basic skills. It's like an IOC during a bad coley. And so I think a lot of the younger generation are somewhat intimidated by open vascular surgery, especially if it's in the extremities, not so much if it's in the retroperitoneum, abdomen, or chest, but especially for the extremity peripheral vascular trauma, you got to stick around and do these things to get comfortable. And as we wrap up, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Brooke Army Medical Center. And I think it's very similar to Dr. Zacherson, how she describes it. My first week on call, we had three penetrating injuries, which is relatively high for an Army Medical Center, but they bring the patient they clamp the vessels on their way to the OR. They call the vascular surgeon. I did the three bypasses with the trauma surgeon and the general surgery resident. And we both round on the patients afterwards and until he leaves the hospital. They did all the exposure because they did it before I got there. I was able to help them with the technical nuances. And I thought it was a very collaborative and helpful method. So do we get to make some final statements here, Kevin? Yes, sir. So I would say that I believe that now is the time to work together to redefine competency goals for general surgeons and acute care trauma surgeons. It's not going to be a one to two day refresher course. It's not going to be vascular surgery light. We need to be smart about this. We need to come together and figure out a way to make it easy for trauma surgeons or even vascular surgeons who had just endo training to get comfortable managing vascular trauma. And whether that's using information technology and creating a national video library or a useful video library with four to six minute videos that help describe how to do a, a complete four compartment fasciotomy. And that, I mean, those are the things that we need to do to help our colleagues who are quote unquote, not comfortable managing vascular trauma, but we need to work together. Agreed. I think whether that looks like something formal, like the military Sea stars program, which has a big presence here in St. Louis, the, the weekend conferences are almost, or the weekend courses are almost never adequate for raising someone to the competency level, regardless of their training background, if they don't go into that with a high degree of comfort and familiarity. And so I think the question should become less and less of who should do it uh, and more and more of how do we get the next generation comfortable and familiar enough with managing these complex injuries regardless of their training pathway. Absolutely. And maybe we can have more discussions in the future on these podcasts about the best ways to do that. So thank you everyone for joining and taking time out of your holiday to help us move forward here. I'll just add, uh, just to close things out, thanks to all of our panelists. It was a great discussion, great debate, and probably to the surprise of nobody, the, the answer is more collaboration. Collaboration between specialties and collaboration between podcasts. So thank you to everybody for being on Behind the Knife, Audible Bleeding, and Trauma ICU Rounds.
Until next time, dominate the day. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.